and we are live. Welcome everybody to the Contrarian Daily Podcast. Today, super exciting guest. We have got Topher Field with us, the director of Battleground Melbourne, one of the absolute OGs of the movement. While we were all twiddling our thumbs and uh, you know listening to Dan Andrews on the TV when I was in Victoria, this man was out in the streets protesting. Um, so yeah, Topher Field, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, thank you. That's that's a very kind uh, introduction. I'm doing very well, and I'm very very glad to be here, and uh, very grateful for your interest in in what I've been doing. When did you manage to escape from Afghanistan? You mentioned that you were in Victoria. <laughs> yeah, so I got out of Afghanistan in um, I think it was ju late July 2020. Uh, as soon yeah, okay. as they started right. to tell me that I couldn't go within five kilometers of my house, I basically pulled the pin because yeah. I wasn't about to have it. But um, I'm in a way envious that you that you actually stayed not because of the lockdowns but because you were able to be there and the documentary was absolutely just phenomenal i loved it so much i watched it and it really brought me back to that time and it was quite a, quite emotional at times because it's mm -hmm. what we were what we were going through and you really embodied that so well and you captured it beautifully right. well thank you look i, I appreciate that I, I think the moment that made me glad that I'd stayed through it all was uh, I couldn't go to protest for a while after my arrest because of my bail conditions. And then I got clarification from the police where they assured me that I was able to go to the protests because they were no longer being cracked down on by the police. Mm. They were in cooperation with the police. The very first one that I showed up to, having not been for months and keeping in mind the last I'd seen, we were getting our head smashed in by the cops. We were getting shot with rubber bullets. Before that, we had 70 people You know, early on in the mm. movement. And then I showed up and the first one that I came back to after a few months away was the 20th of November. And that's the one where Sky News estimated that we had 450,000 people. Um, oh. and, and to go from, from where we were and then nothing, not able to do anything for a while, having been arrested, et cetera. And then, and I was invited to speak at that one as well. So I, just to walk out on that stage and to see what I'd been you know, hoping for um, and dreaming of since that very first protest in April, 2020, uh, mm. that that made staying worthwhile can i just ask quickly what, what did that feel like you know to to walk out there and look out and see a, a wave or a sea of human beings yeah. you know, marching in support what was that moment like all, all i can say is it it was about two maybe three days later that i actually could begin to process what i felt there was almost a degree of shell shock uh, because it was such a contrast. It was so, and it was so unexpected. Like I'd seen the crowds, I'd seen it getting bigger. I'd seen the shots from some of the protests that I'd missed, but this was a huge step up even on that. I mean, it was just such a massive, and it, and it has turned out so far to be the biggest one that we've had. Um, so there was a certain degree of, sh of shell shock, um, but I, I, I think it was, it was mostly just a thrill. Um, and having having been there, having been one of the 70 and one of the, the, the three or so speakers at the very first anti-lockdown protest, having been vilified for mm. so long, having been called every name you can imagine and, and probably some that you can't, uh, the avalanche of hate <laughs> and abuse that I got in my inbox after the Anzac Day protest in 2020 was phenomenal, right? I've, I've never had an avalanche of hate like it. And then th there is a very real feeling of vindication. There is a very real sense of, okay, you know, it was it was actually worth it. What I've the path that I've walked was actually worth it, and there was no guarantee that it would be. Mm. There would have been a time, absolutely, when you were thinking, "God, like, what what are we doing here?" Because the numbers were so small, and being yeah. in Victoria when this all happened, it was like 
people were on board with it for the first little bit, at least for the first mm. few months. I know I was for the first little bit, and there was almost a sense of excitement that there was this pandemic happening, and oh my God, we're going to have a lockdown, it's going to be so crazy, and we're all going to be able to lock in, and I was just getting drunk with my friends five times a week. But then the reality started to heal a little bit, and people started to be genuinely affected. People started to lose mm. their jobs. I know I lost my job. That was half the reason I went. And then there were people like yourself who were out mm. there protesting from the get-go. So at, at that time, were you, were you thinking, oh, God, I'm, I'm part of a real subculture here? Or were you thinking, uh, I'm absolutely convinced that, that I'm doing the right thing? I, look, I, I'm, I'm a political commentator. I've been a political commentator for 12 years, and I'm what's known as a libertarian, basically someone mm. that believes that the government is mostly the cause of problems rather than the solution, and the smaller it is, the better, mm -hmm. right? And that already puts me in a pretty small minority in Australia. This is not a mainstream view in Australia. So I'm very comfortable with the reality that I'm in a, a very small minority. That's fine. So, so that really didn't bother me. I've never done anything of, of what I do these days. I, none of it is about popularity or, or, or who's going to like me. Um, but, but there is a certain, you still have to make a decision. Am I willing to be desperately, deeply unpopular and public enemy number one for who knows how long for the sake of publicly standing up for what's right? Mm -hmm. I could have privately stood up for what was right. I could have, you know, I had other subjects that were that, that were and are very dear to me, particularly the, the water mismanagement in the Murray-Darling Basin. That's an issue that I've been covering for 12 years. It's still very much unresolved. And I could have just continued talking about that and, and a few other things and really left this alone. And I, I had to take stock a little bit and make a bit of a decision and realize that this was clearly going to become the biggest issue of our of these years and had the potential to become, and I would say has now become, the biggest issue of our generation. Right. And and was I going to sit on the sidelines because I was afraid of a little bit of flack and, and maybe some people would say some mean things about me. Yeah. When they announced that 14 days to, to slow the spread, you know, buying time for the healthcare system, I was already skeptical because I'd been watching the scientific data that came out in January, February and March in 2020. And by the end of March, so I released my very first video. I'd been silent on the topic and then I released my very first video on the topic of COVID on March 31st, 2020. And in that, I quote the data and I, I show the sources for the data that made it very, very clear that we should be offering targeted protection to those who are most at risk. That's the elderly and people with comorbidities and compromised immune systems, and that we should not be disrupting the lives of everybody else. That was already very clear in March 2000 and freaking 20. Uh, everything since then, you know, pe pe people say, oh, but they were right to be skeptical early on. They were right to be cautious early on. Yes. In December 2019, January, February, and March 2020, I accept that. By the end of March 2020, we had the data. We knew. And it was very, very clear that the response was completely disproportionate and targeted completely incorrectly. And there's a double-edged sword there. Not only are they going to, to cause a lot of other harm because they're actually using a blunt instrument where they needed a scalpel, but they're actually going to fail to protect the people that need it. By trying to protect everybody, in the end, you protect nobody. When you flatten a curve, when you're dealing with an infectious disease that is sooner or later going to get in and is eventually going to become endemic, you cannot stop it. You can only delay it. Now, there might be a good reason to delay it, like 4,000 extra beds in, in, in intensive care, which is what we were promised by Daniel Andrews. And by the way, guess how many he's delivered? Zilch. No idea. Zero. Precisely none. He's had two years now, right? He's had the better part of two years since he made that promise. He's delivered precisely no bets. What were we buying time for if not to prepare the healthcare system in a really genuine, meaningful way?
So there might be a case for delaying it. But this idea that we could keep it out forever was only ever a pure fantasy. It, this was going to happen. What's happening now with Omicron was always going to happen. We needed to accept that up front. We needed to make preparations, short, sharp preparations that didn't destroy anybody's lives and then let it go and, and protect those who are most vulnerable as much as we could, let it go through. And we could have been, we could have put this whole thing behind us by the end of 2020. Yeah. Yeah. But by late spring 2020, this would have been basically behind us. Now we're, we're heading into, you know, we're, we're, we're late in summer in 2022, and this is still very much ongoing. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, Topher, but at the start, your view on this was basically we should allow a herd immunity to happen. We should protect the elderly and allow mm -hmm. some sort of a herd immunity to happen. But we correct. had this obsession with COVID-0 where Correct. we were, you know, trying to get it down to zero. And sometimes we did, but at the same time, that doesn't change the statistics and the numbers of like what yeah, this it just delays actually it. is. It know? just delays it. That's that's all it actually does. And people have been crowing all the way through about what a great job Dan has done. And, and look at everybody else's statistics. Look at Sweden, look at the US, etc. That's nice. But understand these are societies that have moved on from COVID, Sweden especially. They dealt with it in 2020. It was gone by 2021. It was a complete non-issue for them. Um, you know, the US less so, some states locked down, delayed the inevitable, it's still an ongoing issue for them. But you cannot judge a pandemic response until the pandemic is over. And the pandemic is not over until you have herd immunity. Now, other people argue, hey, we were waiting for the vaccines. That was a good reason to keep delaying was to wait for the vaccines. Well, in my speech at the very first anti-lockdown protest, April 25th, 2020, I said, we are betting our tomorrow, we're, we're destroying our today, and we are betting our tomorrow on a long odds gamble. No. For waiting for a vaccine for a coronavirus, something that has never been done before in human history. Now, some people brought that up and threw it in my face a year later when all the announcements came out. Oh, we've got these wonderful vaccines. Now, the honest truth is I was hoping that they would prove to be wonderful vaccines. I'm a big fan of medical technology. I'm a big fan of disinfectant and antibiotics and, and the fact that smallpox and, um, uh, you know, so many other diseases are basically eradicated now. Um, I'm a big fan of that, and I would love nothing more than for these mRNA therapies to have proved to be extremely effective, cost-effective, fast to develop, safe. That would have been fantastic. Sadly, uh, the, the reality of coronavirus vaccines in the past has been that they don't really work, and they often cause unintended side effects uh, that can actually make people more vulnerable than what they were before they took the vaccine. As this plays out, we're discovering that they promised us that this would have long-lasting immunity. Once you got two doses, you'd be completely immune. You wouldn't be able to catch the coronavirus. You certainly wouldn't be able to pass it on. And you'd have long-lasting immunity. Remember the scare campaign around how long immunity would last from natural infection? They were talking about, oh, no, we don't know how long natural immunity lasts for. It might only be a very short amount of time, right? There was that big scare campaign. Well, now we know that they were wrong about how effective the vaccines would be. Two doses does not stop you from getting it. They were wrong about it stopping infection they were and, and passing it on to other people. They were wrong about how long the vaccines would last. But we are being bullied into pretending that they must be right about how safe they are. Right? Yeah. Now, that is a completely foolish position to take, given that everything we can measure so far, they have been wrong about. I am not going to bet my and my kids' physical health and future on them happening to be right about the one thing that we can't measure yet, and that is the long-term health effects. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that you've been really good on, and the next question after that is why? They have been wrong, and it's been a disaster. It's been a synthesis of just catastrophic decisions by our government. 
but mm -hmm. the question then becomes why and i heard you talking on the prime podcast and i was really interested in your mm -hmm. response and actually changed my viewpoint on on why i think this is happening and you talked about political incentives and i was hoping mm. that that was a point that you'd be able to build up build out yeah yeah so perverse incentives you've got to understand politicians are making the best decisions for them and that's not because they're evil it's because they're human we all do this right it's this is what we do every day all day long the difference with politicians is that their decisions affect millions of other people so when they're selfish and they make a decision in accordance with what's in their best interest it hurts a lot more people than when i'm selfish and i make mm. a decision that's in my best interest so a politician has no incentive to tell people to calm down, cool their jets, wait for the science, let's give it a bit more time, right? When there is a fear campaign, when there is a scare campaign, their political incentive, the thing that is in their best interest is to feed it rather than fight it because fighting it invites criticism. It invites, oh, you don't care. Oh, look at that one person who's died. That was your fault, right? Every mm -hmm. single person, every single bad outcome. So not only they have an incentive to feed it and not fight it, but they also have a massive, incredibly powerful incentive to do something, right? And we see this even in Hollywood movies, right? Let me, let me give you, you know, you think of that action movie where the, the hero is caught up in this moment, whether it's in combat or whether there's a house fire and the family's trapped inside, whatever, and they have that moment and the camera always moves around their faces. They're kind of looking around like, oh, and they're a bit stunned yeah. in the silence, right? And then their wife goes, do something! Or, or whatever, you know, whatever other character it might be, right? goes do something and that's essentially the world that a politician inhabits and especially when the media have created all of this fear and the world is collapsing around them according to the media everyone is looking at them and all the journalists are essentially screaming do something and they have no political incentive there is no there is no good outcome that can possibly come for them going you know what no this is going to sort itself out and here's why if they do nothing and it ends up being nothing, they don't get credit for it, right? They don't get, they can't claim credit for having fixed anything. It just turned out to not be anything. If they do nothing and it turns out to be something, they get castigated for it. They get destroyed in the media. If they do something and it turns out to be nothing, they can claim credit. Mm. They can say, well, aren't you glad I did something? And yeah, if they do something so and it still turns out to be a disaster, right? They can say, well, imagine how bad it would have been if I hadn't done that for you. How much worse could it have been? And we see this with the vaccines, people getting vaccinated, then they catch COVID and they go, oh, look, yeah, I, I know I was vaccinated. I still caught COVID, but man, can you imagine how much worse it would have been if I hadn't been vaccinated? And I'm like, <laughs> you have to use your imagination for that because no one actually knows, right? But but that's a, that's a microcosm. We see that inside people's heads and people saying it online every single freaking day. That's a microcosm of the world in, that, that politicians inhabit. They can claim, no matter what happens, if they do something, no matter what happens, they can wear it as a badge of pride. If they do nothing, no matter what happens, it is a political weapon that can be used by the opposition and by the media to try and tear them down. So their political incentive is overwhelmingly to do something. Now, people have said, oh, it's all a big conspiracy being run by a few people globally, and we can prove that because all these countries did the same thing at the same time. Mm. Right. 
I don't reject the idea that there are there are groups conspiring, groups with a lot of power and a lot of money conspiring. They want more power. They want more money. Uh, they want socialism. They want to reshape the world in the ways that they think best. I don't deny that. But I don't think that every single government around the world is in on it, or even the Western governments. I don't think ScoMo is in some club where, where they're sitting around a table going, oh, how do we destroy the world this week? Right? No, that's nonsense. The reason why their response has been the same is that same political incentive. They're, they're being screamed at, do something, and they're going, what do I do? Oh, he did that thing. Well, if I copy him, then I'm in good company, <laughs> right? I'm safe. If I go out on my own, I'm open to criticism. People are going to ask me, why, are you, why aren't you doing the thing that they're doing? Why are you doing something that no one else has done? But if I just do the thing that they've done, then I'm kind of sheltered. I'm, I'm kind of shielded from most of the easiest criticisms. And again, it doesn't matter if it turns out to be a good idea or not. I just get to go, yeah, but, but they did it. So, so we're world's best practice. In fact, I'm going to do what they did, only I'm going to do it harder, right? Mm. And, and this becomes, well, yeah. we're world's best practice. We are leading the world in the fight against the <laughs> coronavirus, right? And this is what happens. And this is why we, you know, we're hearing things like mass formation psychosis and expressions like that are beginning to be, to be understood in the public and, and coming through interviews with psychologists and so forth. And, and that, I think, is literally where we've ended up. Our politicians all bought into, all responded to the same incentives because they've all got the same incentives. They all copied each other and they all bought into this idea that they are the superheroes saving the world from this deadly virus and without them we would all be dead by now right and you are a libertarian yourself and i'm wondering how much this whole situation cuts to the heart of your personal beliefs and philosophies because libertarianism obviously suggests that smaller government is a better thing and big overreaching government is big no-no so yeah. i guess this whole situation kind of gives credence to the idea of libertarianism and in australia it's it's a subculture in america mm. it's much bigger you have very popular libertarians like um you know ben shapiro you've got dave smith who's a great one you've got um in, in politics you know, you've got yeah yeah uh, Ron Paul and so forth. Even yep. Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan, the mm -hmm. biggest podcast in the world, I would argue. I'm not sure what he calls himself, but I would argue he is largely a libertarian. Um, what has happened in the last in the last two years, the silver lining in all of this, in my opinion, is that an enormous number of people are actually going to suddenly find themselves politically engaged and politically interested for many people for the first time in their lives. And the, the reason for that's very simple. It's a thing called rational ignorance. We ignore things that that we can't change no matter how much effort we put in. You as an individual, you could do all the research in the world and go as deep as you possibly can into politics to decide who you're going to vote for. But in the end, you're still just one vote and you're not going to change the outcome of an election on your own. It would take a pretty extraordinary set of circumstances for that to be the case. So the rational thing to do is to not put energy into it because it doesn't make a difference. Why would I throw all this energy into a thing that's not going to help me when I could spend that energy with my family or on my job or on my hobbies or something that actually gives me a return? So it becomes rational to remain ignorant. The only thing that breaks us out of that as a, as a general rule is pain. When we get hurt by something, we suddenly go, hang on, I can't remain ignorant around this anymore. I actually have to start paying attention mm. now because I'm getting hurt. And the silver lining of so many millions of people being hurt in Australia by politics is that millions of people are now going, hang on a second, what is this politics thing? Why do these people have so much power? Who are they anyway? What made them, who died and made them God? Uh, and so there is a silver lining happening here, in my opinion, where, where people are paying more attention to politics than ever before. And an enormous number of people who would never have given libertarianism a second thought are now looking at it going, yeah, maybe the government does have more power than it should.
Maybe we don't need all those bureaucrats and all these layers and all these rules. Maybe we could live without that. Uh, and and that's, that can only be a good thing in the long run. Whether enough people are having that moment and waking up and to actually really make a change, well, we're going to find out this year because there's a federal election coming up in the next three or four months and then there's a state election in Victoria in November. So that's going to be the test. Yeah, right. And, and the libertarian philosophy is one that I'm interested in. And I, I would actually call myself a libertarian. I'm not a learned libertarian like yourself and I wouldn't know all of the nooks and crannies and fundamentals. But I would say that I'm, you know, I believe in, you know, fiscal policy, quite conservative social policies. Mm -hmm quite, you know, liberal in the United States term, liberal. Yep, but, yeah, um, yeah. you know, I would consider myself a, a libertarian of sorts. And sure. I was wondering, do you see that um, movement progressing in Australia? And have you, like, have you seen a big uprising in uptake in libertarianism? So here's the funny thing about libertarianism. Everyone is a libertarian in at least one area. Even, even communists, right? Abs even a fascist. Every single person has at least an area in life where they go, oh, well, the government shouldn't do that. Mm. What's the government doing butting its head into insert whatever it is, right? Uh, everyone's a libertarian in at least one area. The problem is they don't think it through from an in-principle point of view. They think it through on an issue-by-issue issue point of view. And we see that in, in the political parties and, and what they're offering us now today. So talking about political parties that may or may not embody libertarianism in Australia, you've got the, the only party that I think is actually a, an in-principle libertarian party, and this is just my opinion, uh, are the Liberal Democrats, not to be confused mm. with the Liberal Party, completely different thing. So in Victoria, that's where David Limbrick and Tim Quilty MPs, uh, they're both members of the Liberal Democrats. And they take an in-principle approach to freedom. And they say, right, freedom is good. Therefore, we should have freedom in as many areas as is humanly possible to achieve, um, not just on COVID. Right. Then you get someone like One Nation, and I've got a lot of time for Pauline Hanson, and I've especially got a lot of time for Senator Malcolm Roberts. I've spent a bit of time with him, and I rate him very, very Good highly. Man. Honest man. Yeah. But I have some very fundamental policy disagreements with One Nation. They are very good on COVID. And, and they're speaking out, they're digging their heels in in the Senate at a federal level, and they're telling Scott Morrison, hey, pull your head in, do something about all these COVID um, vaccine mandates, and we're not going to support any of your legislation until you do. Okay, fantastic. Great. But then you look at trade, and you look at immigration, you look at some of these other things, and you go, okay, so you're not an in-principle freedom-friendly party that applies the principles of freedom and liberty across the board. You take things issue by issue. And this has been the problem over time. Everyone's a libertarian in one area, but they don't look at the principle. They just go, no, 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 this is my pet issue. I, I'm a pot smoker and I don't think the government should be regu regulating pot, right? That might be their particular thing where they're a libertarian in that area. But the government should tax rich people and the government should you know, control corporations and the government should this and the government should that. The challenge, because there's a lot of people now who are libertarians on COVID, they are libertarians on vaccine mandates. They've got that one issue and they're really passionate about it. The challenge for people like myself as a political communicator is to try and get them to now think through the principle and arrive at the point where they apply that same logic to more topics than just COVID. Yeah, yeah definitely. One, one thing I'm curious about is I say that um, <clears throat> culture is upstream from politics, right? And culture influences mm -hmm. politics. What do you see sure. out there in the cultural landscape today? And is there anything that we need to be doing or could do to sort of shift that culture to then come downstream to the more libertarian approach with politics yeah. in general? Look, I'm, I'm, I'm not a big culture warrior kind of guy. Uh, I'm personally mm -hmm. very conservative. Um, so my, my personal choices for myself, for my family, tend, tend very conservative. 
Um, but I, I just don't think it's my my place in life to I- I enforce that onto other people, hence politically mm. libertarian. I'm not a big culture war guy. Uh, I, th- I I think culture is actually a symptom um, of, of faith. And I'm, I'm a believer, I'm, I'm a Christian. Uh, and I think actually, you know, um, politics is downstream of culture. Um, culture is downstream of, um, of demographics. Uh, and demographics is actually downstream of religion, if you actually look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think there's a much bigger question to be, to be kind of asked there. All, all I'm doing, I, I, I like to play things with a really straight bat. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I don't like to get fancy. Um, so all I'm trying to do is communicate as best as I can, the reality of what's happening in the world. Uh, and that's what the documentary is about to communicate the reality of what happened on the streets of moment over the last two years and to be as loud and as vocal as I can as an unashamed advocate for human freedom mm-hmm. and kind of at that point let the chips fall where they may i you know i i'm i'm not i'm not the idiot whisperer you know i'm i'm not the pied piper for stupid people if they can't see it there comes a point where i just have to go okay you can't see it you're never going to get it uh and this is something i do talk about from time to time i spent some time in venezuela in 2014 with my wife in in caracas city at the time it was the most dangerous place on earth outside of a war zone we spent a week there. Yeah. We actually, yeah, we actually went there for a friend's wedding, believe it or not. Uh, we spent a week there. It was one of the most the brilliant friend. overseas yeah. trips I've ever done. And certainly since, you know, since I got married, it's one of the, it is the most incredible overseas trip we ever did together. Um, obviously, you know, the last couple of years, we haven't been able to travel at all. But what really opened my eyes was realizing that was a country that used to be in the top 10 wealthiest countries on earth. It's now in the bottom 10 poorest countries on earth. Mm-hmm. And realizing that there were people who fought tooth and nail to stop that from happening. Yeah. But despite their best efforts, it still happened because actually a majority of people were idiots and they wanted it and they bought the promises, they bought the lies uh, and, and they flushed their own country down the toilet as a result. Now Mm. I met someone who fought tooth and nail to save his country from doing that, but never made a plan to get out if he failed. Mm-hmm. And he and his son and now his grandchildren were, were, were living inside this hellhole. His grandson suffering the effects of malnutrition and inadequate medical care. With him growing old, knowing that he saw it coming and he could have got his family out like so many others did. Right? Mm. I am not a go down with the ship kind of guy. My loyalty to, is to my family first and foremost. And I'm going to find, I've been very public with it, all my audience about this. I'm going to fight tooth and nail all the way to the, the election in November. But you know what? If Daniel Andrews is returned as Premier of Victoria in November 2022, I'm drawing a line underneath Victoria and saying, congratulations, you are now the California of Australia. You're a yes. one-party yeah. state. You have, yeah. you have decided that this is what you want. Good for you. You go ahead and enjoy the consequences. Yeah. I'm out and I'm taking my family with me. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And another thing, Tofa, I was going to say, I kind of want to build out that a little bit because we did Mm. do a comparison a few weeks ago with Venezuela. And from Mm. what I've seen with Venezuela, they were really rich in natural resources. And then when Hugo Chavez got in, he started doing massive social spending. So he was spending copious amounts on social programs. And then when the price of the oil dropped, basically... Um, the, they were spending this much and they had this much, right? So Correct, yeah. the spending in, in, in Australia has been ridiculous and we're going to pay so. for that over generations to come. How much of a likeness do you see between, you know, the current Maduro government in Venezuela and what we're seeing in, in, in Victoria and right. all around Australia? Terrifyingly close. And this was brought home to me only last week because we're now seeing people who should know better 
but have big public platforms and a lot of influence, they're now calling for price controls. They're calling for rationing. They're calling, they're, you know, like this is, this is, people don't understand how easy it is to go down the path of Venezuela. They think like it's, and it, look, it's, it's not their fault. You, you watch a documentary on Germany in the 1930s and there's jackboots marching down the street. You watch a documentary on, on China and Chinese communism or North Korea. It looks foreign, right? The striking thing about Venezuela was you walk down there and they had these beautiful buildings, this amazing architecture. So much felt normal. And the entire country was destroyed by only a handful of policies. The welfare spending the nationalization of key industries. And those two go hand in hand, by the way. And this is this is why I'm very concerned about what we're seeing. So we, we, we've got profligate spending that we simply cannot maintain. People are now turning around and saying, well, we need to nationalize industries. We need to, you know, we can't have foreign multinationals profiting off our oil, oil and coal and gas. We're going to nationalize those. Well, that that's uh, that's the road to hell. Um, yeah. Not only, you know, not only do you have all of the same costs that existed previously, but now you've got all the inefficiencies of a government-run enterprise and the complete lack of incentive for them to be efficient. So now it gets even worse. Then you get price controls. Now, price controls don't make things affordable. They make them disappear off the shelves. Uh-huh. There's a reason the price is what it is. And if a shopkeeper can't sell it for the price that he needs to sell it for to turn a profit, he doesn't sell it at all. The minute you control the price on something, the shopkeeper pulls it off the shelf and says, I'm never selling those again until I can sell it at a price where I get to make a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. All these things do not have the effect that are being promised, but those that plus currency controls, okay? So mm-hmm. uh, unsustainable welfare spending, nationalization of industry, price controls, and currency controls. That's it. That's all it takes to turn a top 10 wealthiest country into a bottom 10 mm-hmm in the span of just a couple of decades. And we are we are not far at all from taking a hard left turn and going straight down that road. It's terrifying, actually. Um, and two, two questions I want to sort of follow up on from what you're saying as well is, with the people who are fighting tooth and nail that lost in mm. Venezuela, mm. are there any lessons you can draw from what they did or didn't do that we could probably adapt for us here in Australia? And then two, only if you want to share, where, where will you go uh, if you leave Victoria? <laughs> Plan B. <laughs> yeah. um, look, to, to your, I'm, I'm happy to answer both of those. To your first mm. question, um, here's the hard lesson that I had to accept. We've been taught by Hollywood and popular culture in our very soft, I would almost say infantilized Western sort of culture where anyone my age and younger, we've, we, if, if you've lived in the West your whole life, you've not faced genuine hardship. Even if you individually have faced hardship, you've done it in the context of a country that really hasn't. Even if you've got health issues, you, your, your medical costs are, are at least being subsidized, if not completely covered by the, by the welfare system. Even if you've lost a job, lost a business, gone bankrupt, that sucks for you, but you've done it in the context of a country that has a functioning economy, right? We, we, we haven't seen war on our shores uh, there's so much that we've been spared from and i think we've gone incredibly soft here's the yeah. hard truth i'm not sure that there's anything they could have done differently you know what some battles just can't be won this is something that hollywood hollywood always shows the hero coming in at the end and being in the right place at the right time with exactly the right stuff that they need and somehow turning the tide and everyone rides off into the sunset happily that's not reality some battles can't be won now, I'm not going to leave anything on the table. I'm going to do everything that I possibly can, right? I'm not, I'm not using that as an excuse to go, oh, well, it, you know, victory isn't certain, so therefore I won't try. No, I'll give it everything up until my cutoff point, which is November. 
It is the election in November. That's my cutoff point. And at that point, if Victoria re-elect Daniel Andrews and say, yeah, we like this, we want more of this, at that point, I go, you know what? It's triage, you know, a, a triage in a, in a, in a Ford uh, hospital, in a, in a combat zone. People come in, some people are beyond helping, right? Some people, they're so badly injured, they're not dead yet, but you could pour all your resources into them and you're not going to save them. And there comes a point, in my opinion, where we actually just have to stop putting resources in and just say, okay, you're, you're done, you're gone. You have to go through this and maybe you'll learn a lesson and come out of it on the other side. Maybe you won't but I'm not going to keep pouring resources into you. And, and for me, I'm not there yet. Uh, I'm, still, I'm still pouring all my energy into trying to get Victorians to wake up. But if they re-elect Daniel Andrews in November, mm. at that point, I'll be like, okay, I'm taking my family out. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So second, sorry, second part of your question, where would I go? There's a very high probability that my, my wife and I would take the opportunity to go and live overseas for at least a few years. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we are looking around the Caribbean um, it's relatively easy to get second passports if you're willing to live in a Caribbean country for a couple of years. Uh, and that way we're no longer dependent on just the Australian passport. And people are a bit shocked when I say that because they think Australian passport's one of the best in the world. Is it really? Is a country that is going to lock you out of your own country really that good of a passport? I mean, we saw in the news recently the journalist lady that had to turn to the Taliban and get um, support from them to live in Kabul while she awaits permission to re-enter New Zealand. Yeah, she's terrible. a New Zealand citizen with a New Zealand passport and she's pregnant for crying out loud. And the Taliban turned out to be the humanitarians in this situation. How yeah. effed up are we? Now, we being New Zealand in that case, but we're no better here in Australia. Like, this yeah. is... This is, if you'd said to somebody in 2019 mm. that this would be happening in two years' time, they would have laughed. It, was a, it would have been a punchline of a joke, right? Now it's reality. We have completely destroyed what it means to be an Australian and what it means to have an Australian passport. So I'd be looking to probably live in the Caribbean for a couple of years, long enough to get another passport, uh, oh. potentially from one of the Red Ensign group for those that are into, into international law. You know what that means. Um, and, and that gives me a second passport that means that even if I really piss off the Australian government at some point because of my political work and they decided to strip my passport or whatever, I've already got a backup in place. So that's kind of what we're thinking. We look forward mm. to uh, Battleground Jamaica. <laughs> Hopefully there won't be a Battleground Jamaica, but yeah. <laughs> it's actually, it's fascinating because this whole second passport um, thing, this has been a thing for a lot of uh, people like in the entrepreneurial space for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, um, mainly, you know, around taxes and things like that, but it's entering the mainstream and for everyday mm -hmm. people, you know, and it's, it's mm -hmm. like I said, if you were to say this a couple of years ago, it people would be just, you're a lunatic, you need to be locked up, but no, it's, it's yeah. crazy where things have gone. I've, I've been expecting us to get into this situation. Uh, I, I, I began being concerned about five, six years ago, and I thought it was going to be driven by a, an economic collapse due to welfare spending. Mm -hmm. uh, and then once the interest rates start to rise, even mm -hmm. just a little bit, the government is going to have an absolute nightmare on their hands but i didn't think it would happen for another 10 to 15 years beyond where we are now i thought it was a mid 2030s type problem to have it happen as quickly as it did and, and in the way that it did has certainly caught me off guard and i don't have my plan b in place so mm. my one of my priorities now is to put in place a plan b and and my wife and i we've talked about this extensively are we okay with growing old and being buried in another country probably not even an English-speaking country, being buried there for our kids to actually end up calling that place home, mm. to, to marry locals from, from that place. 
um, you know, now my wife and I, we are both fifth generation Australians. We're, we're as Aussie as you can get without actually having indigenous uh, blood, right? Mm. Um, my, my family name, Field, came over on the first fleet. So we, we're, as, we're as European Australian as you can possibly get. And until a few years ago, the thought that I would go to another country and actually be happy and grow mm -hmm. old and be buried there and my kids would call at home and my grandkids would never know Australia, that was a completely foreign idea. Now it's a very possible, not, it's not a decision we've made, but it's a very possible outcome. It's a very heavy one too. And I think you mentioned a big thing. It's, it's really good that we're talking about this. I don't think it's been talked about enough, but we do need to have like a, an acceptance to a degree of, look, this is the reality that we're in. And we need to start looking once, you can only start looking at solutions once you've accepted that this is the reality that we're in. 100%. And, um, you know, I, I think uh, earlier you talked about religion being like the roots of, you know, culture and all the other stuff. And mm -hmm. there's been a lot of people going back to their faith. And, you know, I know for me, I've been yeah. getting into the whole daily stoic and everything. And I even have this <laughs> chain around my neck that's um, Amor Fati, which is a love of faith. And yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, people do need to accept this. And is there anything that you can sort of, I guess, um, speak to about helping people, you know, think through this whole decision making process, because it, it is a big one. It, it's heavy, as you, as you just mentioned. Yeah. So, so there's, there's two things. Number one, put aside your preconceived notions of who we were. Our, our perceptions lag behind the realities uh, and, and they can lag by as much as 10 years, maybe more. Have a look at how foreigners think Australians are. You know, chuck another shrimp on the barbie. Um, you know, they think, they think it's all Steve Irwin, it's all Crocodile Dundee. Now, that might have had some truth to it in the 1970s. Mm. Their perception of us is 50 years out of date. Our perception of us is 10 or more years out of date. Anyone still saying we're a free country, their perception is out of date. They go, oh, you're such a catastrophist. Yeah, we're a free country. You wouldn't want to live anywhere else. Well, I'm looking at moving. Thank you very much. Because I'm in the present looking at what we are now and what we've become <laughs> and where, where we could very well be by next year or the year after. You're thinking about <coughs> where we were during the mm. Sydney Olympics. Yes. Right? That's the difference. So get in the now is first and foremost, put aside all the preconceptions, put aside all the, the, the stuff that you've brought with you and just have a good hard look at who we are now. That is so true. And you said you've been seeing this play out for a little while and I'm more of a cultural guy. I know that you said you're not really interested in the culture war. I'm very interested in the culture war. I'm an absolute sure. meme fanatic. <laughs> I'm a meme. We talked to Stephen Shavira, who was unbelievably oh, yeah. enlightening about the last sort of 40 is, is years. Is he Stephen or Stefan? I always thought he was Stefan. Is he Stephen? Oh, there you go. Okay. Stephen, yeah. Stephen, yeah. And he was amazing about, you know, what's been happening in the uh, academic circles and at the universities in terms of how cultural Marxism has come in. And then you seem to be somebody who's very politically inclined and somebody who's mm. been able to watch this play out politically and in terms of government, uh, government spending. So I guess I'm going to tie two questions into one here. I'm going to say, who was Topher Field prior to 2019 and even mm. before that? How did mm. you sort of mold your political worldview and what have you been sure. seeing play out that's come to fruition now that we should be, be sure. focusing on? Let me, let me say that the march through the institutions is a very real problem. And when I say I'm not that interested in the culture war, I'm not that interested in, in whether or not we're using specific pronouns and all that kind of stuff of what it's become now. The, the, the march through the institutions is a very real problem. I'll, I'll just, I'll put a pin in that. Um, so I started commentating on politics in 2009 I, I i'm probably the world's only accidental political commentator 
Uh, it, it's not one of those things that you normally trip over in the street and stand back up again and, oh, you're a political commentator now. Uh, but that's kind of what happened to me. My, my cousin um, semi-dared me to make a video or to apply for a TV show that required making a video. I made a video. I wasn't successful at getting into the TV show, so I put the video online brand new YouTube channel, no subscribers. And that was literally the beginning. And it just started to filter through certain circles and grow. And people began to get in touch with me and ask me to make more videos. And I'm like, do you even know who you're asking? Like I'm a forklift driver. I drive a forklift in a warehouse for a living. And I made one video because my cousin reckoned that it'd be a lark. Um, but it literally, that's literally what kickstarted whatever the hell it is that I am now. And I don't even know. Um, so prior to 2000 or up until the end of 2019, I was commentating on politics. I was primarily focused on water and, and mismanagement of water in the Murray-Darling Basin. That's been a pretty consistent subject of mine since about 2012. Um, and water overall, so water uh, availability in Melbourne, whether we should have a desalination plant or be building another dam, etc. That was the topic of my very first video. So water has been a pretty consistent thing. Along the way, I've also, I did a major project on Julia Gillard's Not A Carbon Tax uh, in, you know, called, the 50, called the 50 to 1 Project. And I traveled to the US uh, and, and Canada and around Australia interviewing actual scientists as well as politicians, um, media, etc., on the, the topic of her Not A Carbon Tax. Um, I've done work on taxation. I've done work on freedom of speech. I've done work on a, on a bunch of other topics. I would say in terms of my political progression, I was a conservative until my late 20s. And it was in my late 20s that I would say, right around the time I started making videos was really when I began to, so I, I was I was deeply conservative when in my early 20s, I was in the Army Reserve. And mm. being in the Army Reserve really challenged my perceptions of the competence of government. Conservatives have this underlying assumption that the government is competent that there is such a thing as good government and good management and good regulation and good, you know, um, sort of programs. Um, and being in the, in the reserves really challenged that perception for me. He was this organization entrusted with decisions of life and death. And when I saw, and, and it venerated in conservative circles, I mean, the army, the military venerated in conservative circles. Mm -hmm. And um, what I saw when I saw behind the curtain, so to speak, in Wizard of Oz, get to see the little man behind the curtain, you go, whoa, hang on, this isn't, this isn't what I thought it was. So that was the beginning of my my journey away from a sort of hardline conservatism, but that it didn't really take hold until my late 20s, right around when I started making videos. Um, and then I made a fairly rapid tra rapid transition towards libertarianism by, by my very early 30s. I began calling myself a libertarian. Uh, and then from there, um, actually really starting to wrap my mind around what it is. Uh, what libertarianism actually is. And, and there's lots of books written on the subject. There's lots of people have lots of ideas, but there's this, there's a joke in libertarian circles. If you ask uh, two libertarians to define libertarianism, you'll get three different definitions. Um, and, and, and all three of them will start fighting with each other. Uh, it's, look, it, it's really hard to sort of define. Different people have different ideas. So I'm still feeling that out to be quite honest. I'm still mm. figuring out, you know, am I a minarchist? Am I an anarchist? Am I a, mm. you know, et cetera, right? Am I Rothbardian? Am I, you know, Mises? Am I blah, blah, blah? You know, um, so anyway, I'm reading lots of books and, and learning mm. lots of stuff, even as we speak. Um, but I also try to be intensely practical. And, and that's what you'll see as a common thread through all my work is I'm trying not to be too esoteric and out there in all the theory. There's no point arguing over whether we should be an anarchist or a minarchist when we're about mm. to go broke because of excessive government spending on mm. social welfare programs. That's a discussion for another time, right? Mm. Uh, and so that's kind of my approach to, to that. Love it. 
absolutely love that look so if i'm just aware of the time i know you said before getting on the call you've got a hard stop at 6 45 mate um is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up for, for yourself so we can get on and uh go ahead and do another uh, interview as well yeah look i i really appreciate you guys having me on i'm sorry that i don't have more time i'm enjoying this and i'd be very very happy to come on and keep chatting and, and whatever else yeah. uh but yes at seven at 8 p.m my time uh, so we're an hour different to you at 8 p.m my time i've got ross cameron coming on a show so if you want to watch that if you're watching this and you want to watch that uh the topher field facebook page or the topher field youtube channel it'll pop up there at eight o'clock uh and that should be a really fun conversation it's uh it's called a slow chat for a reason settle in uh, my record is in excess of four hours of continuous wow. back and forth. And I think, was that with um, George Christensen or was that with Craig Kelly? I can't remember. Um, but I've had multiple three-hour episodes. And I've had a four-hour episode. And tonight, I think it's going to be pretty pretty entertaining and pretty long. Um, Mate, you're so giving Joe Rogan a run for his money with that yeah. time frame. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, come on over and join me. But, look, I, I, the number one thing for right now is people need to watch Battleground Melbourne and they need to help it spread around the world. The world needs to see what's happened here. We need to learn lessons from it, um, but also the world needs to learn lessons from it because, you know, you look at Canada, you look at France, you look at a few other places around the world, they're faced with a lot of what we were faced with and, and they're having to make some similar sacrifices and similar decisions. And, and I think we just need to get it around the world as much as we can. Absolutely. Perfect. Thank you so much for that, Topher. And I'm also going to invite you on a mandate to an Instagram live in person. <laughs> I've been doing this a lot lately, asking our guests to come on a, on a date with me to Instagram live over the next few weeks and we can build out this discussion more but once again thank you so much i sometimes feel like the man who went down and jumped in the women and children's ship and you're the one who went down <laughs> so, so we appreciate uh, you Topher. no look uh, my pleasure thank you so much for having me and uh, mandate accepted awesome <laughs> see you there well, yeah, thank you take care all right, guys, make sure you get over. It actually, time the timing works out perfectly. We'll wrap up around 7 p.m. here, 8 p.m. Uh, you know, uh, New South Wales and Victoria time. Mm -hmm. So jump from this stream over to Topher's stream. Make sure you go watch him and check that out. It sounds like it's going to be a good one. Um, mate, any sort of thoughts from, from that conversation? I, I love Topher Field. I think yeah, he same. is the man. Like, yeah. I've, I've been listening to him a fair bit lately, and especially in the lead up to the podcast. And he's actually really helped me change the way I think about things. And mm. Um, especially when it comes to some, like, because he's a guy who's been doing this for years and he's very politically savvy and astute and he's got his worldview down pat. And it's something that we're all trying to do. And a lot of us are trying to play catch up in many different areas, but he's a, he's a cool guy. And like, I really liked the, when he talked about Venezuela mm. and the comparisons there, because I tried to do it a few weeks ago and butchered it on the show, <laughs> but he, yeah. he did a better job than I did. So it was good to sort of have that little back and forth and, I really wanted to ask him about the Joe Rogan, Neil Young situation and um, get his get his take on all the censorship that's going on because I, I've got a feeling with with his libertarian views that he would be somebody who's a free speech absolutist and that he would not be in favour of Mr. Neil Young. Um, no, I agree. I <laughs> trying agree. to censor Joe Rogan at all. But yeah, no, interesting times. I would have also liked to get his view on um, things like China, Taiwan and how oh, that yeah. could eventually have a residual effect on us. I would like to get his view on What's happening with russia and ukraine at the moment but he's the kind of guy who you could just talk to all day so 100 i know why they're going for three and four hours in that slow chat we've, we've got a list of questions and topics like i said we, we want to go with yeah, and yeah, um, we're very much looking forward to getting tofa back on and obviously you can see the the websites has come up on the screen there go to tofafield.net uh two things i noticed about tofa um one he sees things very early so the fact that he's discussing getting out of melbourne and potentially even moving to another country i think people need to pay attention to that mm. that that's you know he, he's as he was saying, he's thinking this through. It's a very heavy decision to make. 
we just don't take ourselves back two years. He saw what was happening very, very early, right? A lot earlier than what most people were. Hence, that's why he was one of the first people to speak out. So definitely start paying attention to that. But the second thing about Topher that I noticed as well, you know, on top of seeing things early is he's very courageous because mm. when he was thinking through making that decision about where, whether you're going to stand out or not and um, whether he's going to go public, that takes a great deal of courage. And I think this is a topic we're going to talk about a lot on the contrarian as well is yeah. that, you know, bigger picture society wide, we've had a decline in courage, right? Which has been absolutely terrible. And I think, you know, getting back to, you know, showing courage as a virtue and those sorts of things will be massive moving forward. So, uh, for anyone watching, just make sure you do pay attention to what Tope was saying, you know, because he, do, he does tend to see things early. Yes. Um, and, you know, be like Topher, you know, be courageous, speak out. There's a, there's a well. YouTube channel that I follow and the guy's name is Nomadic Capitalist. Mm, yeah, and he is yeah. really onto this stuff. And his motto is go where you get treated best. Yes. And he's somebody that I watch quite closely because what he does is he makes his money through passive income and online. I'm not sure if you have stocks or investments or whatever, but he lives around the world and he goes to places like he lives in Georgia and he lives mm. in this place and this place. And he's got his favorite cities around the world and he lives where he is treated best. So I think that that's a motto that people could, could, could end up adopting, and especially the way that remote work is progressing. Yeah. People aren't going to be living in cities anymore. We're seeing people move up to the coasts of Queensland Correct. and to all the beautiful places in Australia. The next logical step is to move overseas. Yep, big time. And look, I, I just don't know what you're doing here because we truly don't, clearly don't treat you very well. So. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. Everyone no, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just the mean one, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but speaking to that, though, if everyone was like you, I'd be... Yeah, I'd be, that's right. I'd be out of by now That's well. it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was interesting, too, because, like, obviously, being from Queensland, you know, I've, I've never you know, lived in Melbourne for an extended period of time. We saw a massive exodus, you know, over the last couple of years up to Queensland here and to the point where... Uh, here in the Gold Coast, you know, prices skyrocketed, but I know up in the Sunshine Coast, there's actually a big deal in terms of people being homeless, right? So mm -hmm. what would happen is that because of such a massive exodus from mainly Victoria, but a bit of fit from New South Wales as well, the prices for the rent went up dramatically. And so what would happen is that these leases would expire with people who are living up here in the existing home, and then the price would get jacked up that much they couldn't afford the difference. Right. So people were living in their cars for weeks at yep. a time, I think even months and things like that too, to deal with that massive all my family are up on the sunny coast and mm. i've got a property up on up on the sunny coast as well and the prices for rent and for um for property prices have just gone astronomically higher over the last few years like yeah, big time. it's impossible to get a good rental in Mullabar or somewhere like that so yeah correct yeah man and the goldie's just as bad as well but the goldie's more developed whereas the sunny coast has like you can only go so high and the council yeah. are much stricter with it so yeah, I hope it stays that way too. I love the Sunshine Coast. It's so, so yeah. beautiful, you know. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, if I wasn't here, I'd be up there. Yeah, man. <laughs> what else you got for me? Uh, look, apart from insults and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> got plenty. I think another thing too that Topher talked about is the fact that some battles can't be won. And I think mm. that's also something we do need to maybe think about. And There's a fine line between being cynical that's and understanding right. that. Correct. And that's yeah. the thing, just being factual. And I, I love his approach of acknowledging that, hey, look, maybe we won't win this, but I'm going to borrowing from Stephen Crowder, fight like hell yes. and tooth and nail until the very, very end. Uh, I think that's massive. And I think it's something we do need to think about and acknowledge. And then when he was saying that, and again, I wish we had more time with Topher, yes. my mind went, went immediately to, okay, if we lose this, then we need to shift to enduring, right? And surviving. And that's something too, because again, you look at things like Venezuela and stuff like that. How do you then, you know, if you aren't in a position where you can leave, um, how can you then endure and survive in that situation for you know as best as possible 
because um, yeah, it, it's I know moving is not an option for everyone, especially internationally. Especially so, having people who have a family and that's people right, who have established themselves and correct and people who are too too young as well. There's plenty of people who would not be able to move at all. But correct, yeah, it, it is one of those things where you do have to look at your your options. And it's like I never ever thought that as an Australian I would I would have to say that. Yeah, but perfect. Yeah, it's I not. Agree. It's when I don't think we're there right now. But the way things are going. It would have to take a serious shift in public consciousness and in our political consciousness for us to be able to do a 180 and maybe go back to where we were. And Topher makes the very interesting point that this is not something that happened in 2020 and oh, correct. it's something that's been happening. Mm -hmm. and, and Stephen Shivera told us that the march through the institutions has been happening since the 1970s yeah. and he drew that straight line for us. Topher Field just told us about the political spending. I mean, the, the government spending that's been happening that's, you know, dug the trench before we started freaking digging it even more mm, mm -hmm. at a more rapid pace for COVID. So, yeah, I mean, another thing that I was, you know, listening to today um, was that we live in a surveillance state. Now. Yeah, 100%. We, we, we have to check in everywhere we go and people take this for granted, but we have to check in everywhere we go. You're driving around and you've got speed cameras and traffic monitoring cameras and phone cameras and you've got a copper behind you up your ass and we are being surveilled everywhere we go. Yeah, and, and that's just the reality of things. And we are moving more and more towards China. Every single year, you have a list of rights. Every single year, they get smaller. You have a list of, of rights and there's a list of laws and rules and regulation. Every year that gets bigger. Yeah, so that so. only leads to one place. It does. And the thing that's really terrifying for me too is I think I first heard it from Dennis Prager and I don't know whether he's the one that came up with this term, but people want to be looked after. They don't want freedom. Yes. Like where are the people who want freedom and you know the freedom to choose because freedom comes with responsibility. It doesn't just come with, hey, like I'm free to do whatever the heck I want to do. When you choose freedom, that comes with a lot of responsibility and the vast number of the population, they want to be looked after and they don't care, you know, surrendering a bit of their freedom uh, to have that, you know, quote unquote, being looked after by daddy government or whatever it is. Yes. Uh, one thing I'm really interested in is actually how do we get, you know, get people back to loving freedom and not being once, you know, not just once being being looked after. If I can use my words properly, that'd be mm, quite nice. But it would be great. That, that'd man. be a good one. <laughs> <laughs> get out. No. <laughs> no, but I think that yeah. like, you know, the, the, the great awakening let's call that's it. it yeah we've got the great reset and the great the two the absolute polarity of ideas is the great reset and the great awakening so the great awakening for me is something that could be a big positive yeah and we've seen in the past that wars have been won through the absolute love and adoration and pursuit of freedom and we saw that through world war world war ii in particular um and we could see that again and we could move into some utopian time where mm. people are you know using bitcoin and farming all of their own meats and vegetables and you know living sustainably and and you know using the losing our land more and not crowded into these miserable little cities and that could be interesting yeah it could be very, hey, very interesting i've got my optimist hat on tonight that's right <laughs> next week we'll talk about the great I'll get rid of that yeah no, exactly trench coat yeah that's right exactly <laughs> Awesome. Well, look, we are coming up to the top of our of the hour. Anything else you want to sort of add or talk about before we wrap things up? Ah, uh, hashtag cancel Joe, Joe Rogan. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. That's that's definitely a big topic. Well, guys, look, we've we got plenty to talk about, as you can see, and uh, plenty more to go on with. So, um, yeah, that's about all I want to talk about for right, right now. If you want to wrap the show up, mate, well, uh, yeah, guys, make on. sure you're following us. Our our uh, telegram is just starting to kick off now because instagram is absolutely whacking our account at the moment mm. we're getting something like 30 or 40 views per story and no engagement on our posts what so were we getting before this happened three four five hundred there you go per, yeah, so it's per down story, 10%. So yeah. yeah okay it's down a lot yeah mm -hmm. 
two ten percent of what it was. Yeah, yeah. two ten percent. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, we're getting whacked at the moment. We can post more unfiltered things to Telegram. So if you guys have made it through this far and you've, you're now listening to us babbling on like um like a bunch <laughs> of headless chooks, then I'll speak to yourself, then, mate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Link in our bio at our Instagram, Contrarian Daily. Follow our Telegram. Subscribe on YouTube. All of the good stuff. And thank you so much for your support, everybody. Brilliant. All right. Bye for now. All right. Take care, guys.